Hey, everybody. We want to thank you all who have supported the show. And anybody who is interested in supporting the show can check us out on Patreon. Patreon.com slash xchateau, or you can find the link on xchateau.com. We have over 100 episodes, and by becoming a patron, you can get access to 100-plus episodes. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your hosts, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, we're going to be talking with a founding brother and sister team, Jen and Zach Pelka, who are the CEO and COO of Unfem, which is a wine brand made from its inception to market to women. Jen and Zach, welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having us. Can you please give me and Peter a brief overview of your backgrounds and how you got into starting Unifem? Maybe we'll start with uh, Jen as the CEO. Yeah, sure. Well, great to see you guys. Thanks so much for having us on. You know, I've worked in food and wine for probably the last 20, 25 years, really since graduating college. I guess I'm aging myself. I'm 40 now. So let's say 20 years. And... I have had the luxury of working for really amazing people, including Chef Danielle Ballou in New York at Restaurant Danielle. I worked at the Guilt Group, leading their food and beverage site, launching their e-commerce site specifically for food and, and wine called Guilt Taste. And there I was leading all of the food and beverage editorial, as well as launching really awesome products, which is really one of the areas where I fell in love with champagne and sparkling wine. And then from there, after I had been cooking at Danielle for a long time and then moving into uh, the e-commerce side of the world, I ended up moving out to San Francisco to work for Open Table, where I was heading up food and beverage marketing specifically on the B2B side. So leading restaurant marketing for Open Table, helping people to really understand the value of Open Table from a chef and restaurateur perspective. And then from there, I launched a food and wine PR company called Magnum PR. We were focused on doing PR for restaurants in San Francisco. We worked with all amazing chefs, Brandon Jew, Tracy Desjardins, a whole host of amazing chefs and restaurateurs and helped them to launch new restaurants and launch products. And that's one of the places where really throughout my career worked with a lot of press and PR and influencers thinking about how to position products or restaurants to a broad market, but specifically of people who love food and wine. And for a long time, I had wanted to launch a champagne bar. And it was just something that I was really interested in, uh, really passionate about. And I opened my first location in San Francisco in Hayes Valley called The Riddler. And it was a smashing success from day one. It was so fun. We had such a blast. And eventually we opened a second location in the West Village in New York. And all of our investors in both locations were women, 33 in San Francisco, 40 in New York. And our focus at both of those champagne bars was really around great champagnes and sparkling wines in, I would say, like a high-low environment. Like, you know, really popularizing the idea that you can be drinking champagne and sparkling wine any day of the week. doesn't have to be a special occasion. It could be a Tuesday night. You're out with some girlfriends for a drink. And the Riddler was really, really fun place for all of us to go drink champagnes. And out of that was born Unfem. And that's where we are now. Zach and I actually had an opportunity to work together on a bunch of these projects before we launched the brand, but I'll kick it over to him. Definitely. And so again, thank you both for having us. We're super excited about this. I would say my background is 
exact opposite of John's. I don't come from the food and wine world at all. I went to Wharton undergrad, was an investment banker, and really grew up focusing on finance, operations, numbers, analysis, and ultimately out of college launched my first startup, which is a student student lending, where it was basically an equity-based alternative to traditional student debt, quickly raised venture capital funding, hired a bunch of people, ended up selling it to a company in Colombia. Really, really interesting process to go through from structuring derivative products to you know dealing with big banks, really heavily regulated industry. From that, basically spent some time really focused on student lending, capital markets, and really just focus on fundraising at a high level. And just really going through like technology startups and really accelerators similar to Y Combinator and really thinking about building businesses at like a venture scale. And so ultimately, when Jen wanted to expand the Riddler from San Francisco to New York, I'd always looked at her as the person in my life who had the most fun and the most interesting life. And so as the younger brother, someone who I've always modeled myself after was Jen. And so she came to me and was saying, do you have any interest in becoming CFO of the Riddler? And so at that point, I was like, a no-brainer, sure, let's help expand the Riddler from San Francisco to New York. And then on top of that, at the same time, we decided it made sense to try to launch a brand in-house. So the interesting part about the Riddler was that we had data from both locations, San Francisco and New York, selling 150 to 200 wines by the glass, by the list, and knew basically where the customers wanted to purchase product. So Basically, again, within the two locations, roughly 70% of our demographic were women. So we knew consistently what women wanted to drink in the sparkling category. It was really interesting to us once we started digging in, the average champagne house of the top 10 were 206 years old. And so coming from the more technology-based system, the whole concept of disruption, it was screaming, all right, if these top brands are all 200, 300 years old, there has to be an avenue for something new, something fresh, something bright. And so taking a more CPG-based approach that we're seeing in beauty, in fashion, and other spaces really, really developing in the D2C and CPG world, can we marry those trends to a legacy space like Champagne, which is how we ultimately decided to launch Unfem in-house. And so that's really sort of the beginning of the foundational story. We have a lot of, obviously, interesting things that happened during COVID. We launched in February of 2020, so the best time ever to launch an on-premise brand. So there, there's a lot of learnings that happened throughout the time, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll let you or you guys dig into that a little bit more. So it was meant to be the uh, you call it in-house brand. There's a better word for it that I think like a white label brand for the Riddler itself and not sold anywhere else. Yeah, that's exactly right. The first wine that we launched was called the Juliet. We launched it in partnership with Julie Medvi of the Gonet Medvi family. She's a fifth-generation grower-producer, all organic production out of Champagne. We loved her wines. She was a huge fan of the Riddler. She would visit us in San Francisco and New York. And we talked to her for a year plus about the possibility of doing, essentially, as you say, a white-label wine for us at the Riddler. And so we launched that wine in both locations. But then a lot of people were asking to buy it at retail and in other restaurants. And so a lot of our friends picked it up for their lists in San Francisco and New York and Chicago. And then from there, we saw that there was potential to launch it into a bigger brand. And then when COVID hit and we ended up closing both of the restaurants, out of the ashes grew this brand, which is now 
a national brand. But if we still had the Riddlers open as much as I would love that today, we probably wouldn't have Unfem as, as such a big brand today. So maybe we get a little context on what is in the product line, just so, just so that listeners understanding like what is the Unfem product line, and then we can kind of dive into it. I have a, I have a follow-up question. I just want to kind of get a baseline of what the offerings are. Sure. Yeah, our two flagship wines are called the Betty and the Cali. We name all the wines after women. Uh, the Betty is the Betty because it's our sparkling white, so for Betty White. Okay. Um, it's our sparkling white wine. Yeah, it's cute, right? Zach named it. Um, <laughs> we're all big Betty White fans. And she was a big champagne and sparkling wine fan. So it's an homage to her. She's such a badass. So our sparkling white wine is a really beautiful California sparkling white wine, brute style. It actually has no dosage, so um, no added additional sugar. So even though it's somewhere, it's, it's actually technically extra brute, but we market it as brute. And it's really delicious. It's 80% Pinot, 20% Chard. We have a big focus on champagne varietals in general. And for us, it's just a classic example of a California sparkling wine that we think rivals champagne in some ways. and is certainly really, really delicious and approachable. And we just love that wine. So the Betty is our first. The Cali is our sparkling rosé called the Cali because she's from California. And again, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay focused, light, bright, dry, delicious, approachable sparkling rosé featuring primarily fruit from the Central Coast. And that wine we made in partnership with Samantha Sheehan, who is one of our favorite female winemakers. She makes ultraviolet and Poe and mom and pop vermouths, if you've ever seen those. And that was really the wine that was the first to take off for us. That was the wine that we put, we decided to launch because we were seeing that the most popular wines that we were selling at the Riddler were sparkling rosés by the glass. And I couldn't find a great sparkling rosé by the glass that was affordable and approachable, but dry in style from California. And so I reached out to Sam and said, hey, let's make one. And that was the first wine that we made from California. Got it. And so both those wines retail for around $32, right? Yep, that's right. Okay. I'd also chime in here that we have multiple formats for each. So we have 750 milliliters, which is definitely, I would say, our, our major focus. But we also have each of those SKUs in 187 milliliter four-packs. And then we've also launched them both in uh, 250 milliliter cans, which we're doing a lot of business with, specifically with our major partner at Delta Airlines right now. Got it. Okay. So your motto is world-class women-made wines that give back to female-centered cherries. Okay. Let's, maybe we can unpack that statement a little bit. So let's start with the world-class women-made wines. How do you go about that? Do you make your own wines? You mentioned you partner with some winemakers. Are you reselling wines made by someone else or are you set up as a, as a winery yourself? So basically the way that we handle and focus our building our business is really having a very flexible supply chain, working directly with our favorite wineries and our favorite winemakers. So focusing on a low CapEx model, working directly with contract manufacturers on actually overseeing the production. We have our own internal operations supply chain team that helps source product themselves and so ultimately, the way we've been focusing the past few years is ahead of harvest, working directly with our favorite wineries on contracting out specific varietals ahead of harvest that we know are going to go in. So for example, we have sophisticated forecasting on what our next 12 months of really demand is ultimately going to be. We directly contract with wineries, primarily in Central Coast right now, have harvest, 
Again, we're focused on champagne varietals. And then ultimately, we have our own host winery. We currently have one. We manufacture at three different locations. We're actually going to have three technical alternating proprietorship wineries. So type two license for all of those who are nerdy on the TTB or California ABC side. And then really from there, we oversee manufacturing throughout the entire year. And so for each SKU, we focus on partnering with a world-class winemaker on the actual blend, the technical analysis, the lab, ETS, et cetera, that really goes into sort of the design flavor profile of what that wine looks like. And then more from a day-to-day manufacturing basis, we'll help oversee with our different production facilities, the main one being in Lodi, but we also have a facility in Carneros and another one in Napa as well. So neither of you are are hands-on making the wines directly yourselves, but you're kind of identifying a flavor profile that you're looking for and discussing it, working through with your winemakers? Like really the first step is we pick which winemakers we want to work with, whose style of wine we really love. So great example, we worked with Julie Medvi, as I said, in Champagne. We loved her wines. They're so luxurious, so delicious. So we reached out to her and in that case, we worked with her on wines that she already makes. And we brought them to the U.S. and brought them to our customers as part of our brand. In the case of our projects with Sam, we typically work with her by actually starting from the very beginning. What do we want to make? And then we partner with her directly to make those wines. The Betty, which is our most recent sparkling white wine, I was very, very involved in the making of that wine, the profiling of that wine. And I wanted to make a classic sparkling white wine. So it's a little bit of both. You know, we really think about what do we think our customer wants? Where do we see an opportunity in terms of what we can't find when we're out shopping and and looking for great wines on retail shelves? And who's the right partner for us to be doing? So some we make in-house and some we partner directly with with winemakers who make them in their own winery. So in the other part of the statement of your motto, it's give back to female-centered charities. I'm curious on the ethos of that, but also talk about a little bit more of the details of what does that actually mean? Yeah. Absolutely. So each of our wines is partnered directly with a charity that we care very much about that specifically benefits women. So we team up with the Breast Cancer Research Fund for the Cali. It's a sparkling rosé. This is our biggest area of impact, I would say, primarily because of our relationship with Delta. That's how we originally got hooked up with the Breast Cancer Research Fund, is that every October they do a big feature and partnership with Breast Cancer Research Fund. Um, Not only do we make a donation, but of the products that are purchased through Delta, there's an additional kickback that Delta makes to the Breast Cancer Research Fund. And so for us, this is really, really core to our DNA. So Breast Cancer Research Fund for the Cali, for our sparkling white wine, the Betty, we donate to Dress for Success, an organization that helps women to get back into the workforce after they've been through challenging moment in their lives. This is something that's very, very important to me as a female entrepreneur and as a woman who cares very much about women and financial independence. So that partnership is really exciting for us to be able to make financial contributions to help women in those worlds. And then sometimes we launch like fun, special wines that are limited edition. Two great examples were our piquettes. Those are wines made from the second pressing of grapes And our first one that we launched was a Pinot Noir Piquette made with grapes from the Vanderkamp Vineyards, a very, very special biodynamic vineyard at the top of Sonoma Mountain. They were hit by the wildfires of 2020, and they were going to lose all of their grapes. But with Sam Sheehan, our winemaker on those wines, we essentially like rescued those grapes and made a Piquette out of them. And through that wine, we also gave back a portion 
of proceeds to an organization called Tree Sisters, which both employs women in some of the poorest areas of the world in the tropics and also plants trees. So it's both like providing employment opportunities for these women and planting trees for carbon offsets. That was an important moment for us to draw attention to the wildfires of Northern California and, in, and of course, climate change affecting all of the wine growing regions around the world. We got a lot of press for that one as well, which is, I think, an important component of these charitable pieces to this business. Not only are we giving back financially to each of these organizations, but when we have these charitable tie-ins, a lot of times we get press for it, which helps to broaden awareness to those organizations. And then another fun one that we donate to is called Batonage. They're an amazing organization based in Napa County, Sonoma County, run by some Psalms and women in the wine world. They have a conference that they host almost annually, bringing women together to talk about leveling the playing field for women in wine. Um, and they also have some sponsorship and mentorship programs. And so our donation to Batonage gives back to those mentorship programs. Yeah, we've had them on the show before. That was Oh, the, they're yeah. so great. We, we love them. They're an amazing team. We always look for more and more opportunities to team up with them. What they're doing is really important. So in terms of these charities, I mean, you mentioned uh, four or five already. In terms of donations back, is it is it as simple as per bottle, like a like a certain amount that comes off at the top that you attain from each bottle, or is it uh, or is it something you do at the end of every year and you're looking like how profitable that was? We assess it every quarter and look at where we are as a business, and then make as generous of a contribution as we can make. The thing that's amazing about scaling is it means that we can give more and more, and our partnership with Delta. You know, we're now a global partner to Delta Airlines. We do our sparkling white wine in cans is on every plane in the U.S. And then now we're on many international flights, both inbound and outbound to the U.S. And we're in 45 Sky Clubs. So you can imagine it's a huge amount of wine. And we make donations through all of those cans that we sell. So is it hard to translate that message to the consumer of like, because it was always super easy, like with Tom's, you know, obviously going outside wine here, but it's like, hey, if you buy the pair of shoes, this is going to give another pair of shoes to someone else. It was like a no brainer for someone to grok what that was as a consumer of that. And a lot of charity, a lot of entrepreneurial endeavors that have charities tied to them. It's, it's a little, it's a little bit murky. And I'm just curious on how, if this is a part of your motto, how transparent can you be with your, your actual user base? It's a great question. It's really important. We definitely strive for as much transparency as we can possibly provide. And as we grow larger, we will continue to share more and more information. We would love to find a way to make it really obvious to our customers and our supporters of how much is given for each one. In the original, for example, when we launched our piquettes, we would plant a tree for every bottle of piquette sold. We haven't found like a really pithy way to do that right now. But... I'll take it back to the marketing team and I'll circle back with you once we figure out exactly how to how to package it up. Yeah, and I was going to say one of the other challenges is just based on like alcohol compliance, we can't tie a specific dollar value to a can or to a case. And so that is just like the reality of marketing in an extremely regulated space. So we do our best to be as transparent as possible, but there's just the reality of big government above us. Okay, I didn't realize that. In terms of um, the charities you work with, like choosing a charity per SKU seems like a lot of work, especially on the back end for you, Zach. Uh, but I'm curious, like, like as you roll out more and more things, is that something you guys are going to keep up? And if you get, eventually get to like 10, 12 products, like that's, that's a lot of charities. I think we'll actually probably consolidate to one. 
we have this debate internally all the time. But I, on the team, I tend to be the one who launches the special project wines that are tiny production and that have a niche charitable component. And I would say those will always be a really important part of our business because people love, you know, special limited edition products. But I think, you know, when you look at our flagship products of the sparkling white and the sparkling rosé, those two charitable partners will really be our, our main focus going forward. So if you were to look back at your like first, the first year of with um, tying to charities, is there a ballpark percentage that you're able to share? We're, we're not allowed to share it. Based oh, on. okay. But it's, it's a significant contribution every... I'll say we, we've donated tens of thousands of dollars in the last quarter. So I'll keep it general. Great. Okay. I appreciate the general answer. That's good. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. So Unfem has grown pretty quickly and has had a lot of success. To date, how big is it become and what are your growth aspirations? Yeah, absolutely. So we'd like to think we're the fastest growing sparkling wine brand in the U.S. And be very curious if anyone has, has numbers to top this. But in 2020, when we launched really quarter way through the year, we did 1,500 cases year one. Last year, year two, 2021, we did 5,400 cases and this year, our trailing quarter is over 50,000 cases. So by 2022, year end, we'll be at over 100,000 cases on track to do roughly 200 plus next year. So definitely have been growing at an extremely fast clip. I would say from like the aspirations perspective, you know, I think 400, 500,000 case brand is definitely feasible just based on really the potential footprint of where we are today and where we want to go. I would say at a high level, our aspiration is ultimately to become a call brand in the sparkling category for women. We talk about this a lot internally. It's one of our key OKRs. Ultimately, I think that men historically have had call brands walking into a bar. So like I want Johnny Blue. And so just for everyone, a call brand is like you specifically walk into a bar and name either a liquor or a wine. And it's definitely been difficult within the wine space for, I would say, most people to break through outside of maybe like Dom, Veuve Clicquot, Whispering Angel. There's not a ton of call brands at scale. And so our goal is ultimately to be positioned in that way where you walk into a bar, you want a sparkling wine, and we are the domestic option. Jen, I don't know if you have any additional aspirations, but that's definitely my my main focus. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we want to be modern brand for women when they are in a restaurant or in a retail shop, or frankly, anybody who wants to support a more diverse offering and a more modern style of wine and approach to winemaking, especially things like giving back as being really core to our brand. So often guests at the Riddler would ask us, how can I know where to find wines made by women or when I'm shopping in a retail shop or at a restaurant. And it's really hard to decipher when you're in a store. Like I would really encourage everybody the next time they're in a wine shop to walk around and ask themselves like which of these is made by a woman winemaker or led by a female CEO. There still are very, very few brands that check those boxes. And it's a big opportunity. There's a huge amount of consumer interest in it. There's a huge amount of consumer interest in buying brands that are mission aligned with individuals' personal approach to how they're running their own lives and what they're thinking about in terms of the brands that they want to support. And the thing that I think is amazing is that 
there is such an appetite from national brand partners. Two of our biggest national brand partners are, as we said, Delta Airlines and then also Marriott, the largest hotel group in the world. We're available by the glass at every Ritz-Carlton in the U.S. and also available at St. Regis, JW Marriott, and Autograph Collection. So that's their premium tier within Marriott. And both Delta and Marriott are incredibly committed to diversity and inclusion. And a lot of that has to do with the suppliers that they bring into their flagship properties. And the reason why they care about that is that we all care about that now. We all are thinking about sustainability. We're all thinking about more diversity around the table. We're thinking about diversity in boardrooms, diversity on cap tables. And so we're really fortunate that we are able to be part of that conversation. And frankly, when you look at the availability of brands that are led by a quote-unquote diverse founder, the largest barrier to entry to scale is access to capital. The reason why you see so few of those brands in the big leagues is that it's really hard for diverse founders to raise money. And we're incredibly fortunate that we just closed our Series A. We closed a $10 million Series A. So we're in a position that we can grow and we have a lot of appetite to grow. So I'd love to see these wines you know, at Yankee Stadium as much as the Met and at the Ritz-Carlton and you know, your favorite independent restaurant in San Francisco or New York or Nashville. Peter and I have been chatting about your brand and it's it's really interesting because especially in talking with you both, you you both have like a, a consumer goods vibe to you in terms of how you speak to that. Obviously, given your backgrounds, it's quite interesting. And we want to understand how you thought of marketing to women within Femme. It feels like the whole brand revolves around it. So maybe we should look at it from the, the five P's and, and story framework. And so maybe we could talk about that in terms of people, product, place, promotion. I'm trying to think of them all the top of my head. <laughs> so. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the first things I'd mention is, I don't know that we go out explicitly to market to women. I think we market to everyone who cares about buying products from diverse founders and with diverse points of view. So actually, when we, we have a lot of data from our website to see who purchases from the website, and only two-thirds of our customers are women. So that means, by default, a third are not women. And... That's interesting to us. So whether people are buying it for gifts or whether they're buying it because they themselves believe in the mission and they think the wines are great, we're all for it. I'd be curious to see how different that was from like wine.com's sales of sparkling wine, if it'd be mm-hmm. actually any different. I know when we were raising money, something like 70 to 80% of purchases of wine are traditionally women. I would say that's not necessarily silo to T to C, but it's just typically historically, women are purchasing groceries, et cetera. And so there is definitely a, a huge underlying trend of overall aggregate consumption is traditionally women within wine. So I would say, if anything, it's sort of in parity with other brands that you would expect. The way that I think about it a little bit is like when we were at the Riddler, you know, these bars were funded by women. All of our leaders were women, our chef, our beverage director, et cetera, were women. And so naturally, a lot of our customers were women. Like a lot of our press and our social media was about women getting together. But we, you know, we had a lot of guys who'd come to the Riddler too. They would drink their shambongs and, you know, eat their caviar and potato chips. Like, it was fun. So we're, we're all about everybody drinking these wines. I mean, I'd like to point out, like, we're on a podcast hosted by two men. So there is interest outside of just women, for example. 
I think Robert and I have both been to the Riddler. <laughs> exactly. In San I, I Francisco. Go to <laughs> so, it's the best. But how is your product catered towards women? So, like, I mean, I guess, is it just the nature? Is it the packaging? Is it the actual product itself? Is that the fact that you're making sparkling wine, sparkling rosé? Is that in itself the positioning? Or is there something more to it than that? Is there, is there a taste profile that you're doing differently? I would say the taste profile that we're going off of is honestly like my taste profile and what I saw was popular at the Riddler. The first two wines that we launched were the Juliet, our organic grower producer champagne. We launched that wine because we loved that winemaker and her wines were incredibly popular and that style of champagne was extremely popular. Like small grower producer, no malolactic fermentation, a lot of lees aging, like beautiful, rich wines, organic production, like very site-specific, very terroir-driven, like that style of wine I just loved. That was our first wine. The rosé, the Cali, we launched because, as I said, we couldn't find a sparkling rosé that was available by the glass at the right price. Those wines were incredibly popular with our customers. Those guests were, of course, I'd say like 80% women in New York and San Francisco and a particular demographic of women, the kinds of women who are like independent, awesome, out to have a great time, picking up their check and cool, independent, modern women who wanted to drink great sparkling rosé that was dry. So that was the second wine we made. And then we made the Betty, our sparkling white, because we can't get champagne right now. Everybody knows that champagne is like so hard to bring into the US. So I wanted to create essentially an extra brute style, which again is a style that I think broadly appeals to a lot of people, certainly women right now. But the idea of no dosage is exciting to a lot of people who care about both the taste profile and like the health and wellness aspect of reducing their their sugar content. And so trying to like bring it back to to the five Ps. So for example, like pricing. (laughs) So for pricing, I wouldn't say that we analyze women purchasing patterns versus men's purchasing patterns. Instead, we look at aggregate, what are underlying trends, where the headwinds or the tailwinds. And so thinking about really one of the biggest drivers within the overall wine space right now is premiumization. And so typically anywhere from the 1999 to 3099 category has been explosively growing, whereas many, many other sectors have been dropping. Similar sparkling wine has been growing year over year for the past three, four, five years whereas still wine has been flat or has been dropping. And so I would say a lot of our product decisions and pricing decisions are more like data-driven based on just what the trends are saying from Nielsen, from all the top reports. And so right now on our site, both the Betty and the Cali are roughly $32.99. We have some major retail partners that are going to be coming online next year. We'll probably be centered in like the middle of the country, more around the $24.99 space. And so we want to have a product that is priced that can be scaled just based on the potential customer demographics, but similarly is still premium, feels savvy for like the educated consumer. So I would say like that's another framework. So how do you think about both scale and making those data-driven decisions when, I mean, you have to tell me how long it's on lease, but if it's traditional method sparkling, the product creation time or, you know, the, the time to make the wine is often two plus years. So that can be challenging to balance those things because the fad can be over in two years, right? Whereas you need to have the product in in the cellar for a while. Well, first and foremost, we do, um, for our two flagship wines, we do Charmant Method sparkling. So the fermentation is still yeast fermentation. We are not carbonating those wines. They are yeast fermentation, but it's happening in tank. 
So it can happen much, much faster. So you're still getting a lot of those lazy, yeasty characteristics, but the timing's compressed and you can just do it faster. And that is the specific project that we reached out to our winemaking partners to say, can we make a high quality Charmant Method sparkling wine with great, great juice and sustainability at the very, very forefront in a way that lets us price these $25, $30 appropriate for by-the-glass pricing for restaurants, whereas going up to champagne is a lot more expensive. So of course, we had a champagne in the portfolio that was really important to us. We would love to do a champagne method sparkling from the US as well. And we're certainly talking to producers who we love, women who are making amazing champagne method wines. But for these two wines, the way that we're able to get to price at scale is through Charmant Method. And how long is it on lease and tank? Because usually, you know, six months plus, then you start to get a little bit of lease impact with the Charmant Method. Right. We're, we're doing between like a month and three months right now. But you can still sense it. You can still... Like, if we haven't sent you any yet, we should. And I'd encourage you to, like, blind it next to some other California, certainly Charmant Method and also Champagne Method. And we're, we're really, really proud of, of these wines. We think they taste great. Are you using any other techniques to help you get more Lee's Impact, like a horizontal tank or other things? We're not. We've certainly looked into it and are thinking about it. And as we continue to improve these wines with every time that we're making them, we're thinking about all those kinds of things. So uh, it's interesting to give some details because as you as you mentioned, Shaman, like $32 for Shaman Method is, is a very premium product for that style of winemaking. And compared to, you know, obviously if you're looking at Prosecco's on the, like some premiumization that's happening in Prosecco, especially with the rosés that have come out. But then you also have Cava's, which are, you know, you know secondary fermentation and bottle, which are, it can be less expensive. And then in, in California, you don't, you don't necessarily see it as often at that price point. So it's an interesting positioning of that. And so it sounds like the Betty and the Cali are your vehicles for growth and scaling stuff that, because otherwise the lead time for your even other additional offerings would take too long to kind of be able to, for you to hit your growth curve that you were talking about earlier. I would say that those, those are certainly the two where we're thinking we will most likely put most of our focus, but we are actively talking to champagne producers, producers of cava, producers of Prosecco as well. And so they're all on the table and, and certainly active opportunities that we're pursuing. For us, it really has to do with finding the right partners, people who make wines that we really love. And for those, you'd be more of a white label. So I look at the Juliet image, it, it's very much Unfemme branding through and through. That's right. We've just evolved the labels over time because people were confused. So <laughs> we wanted them to look a little bit more consistent. Got it. So if you go and work with a Prosecco or a Cava producer, you're going to bring them in and it's going to maintain your same kind of branding. So more of a white label. And so in that regard, are you then the importer as well? Yeah, we would uh, be. We don't know yet. You think so, Zach? Yeah, we would be. From a compliance perspective, yeah. We would be the importer of record. We would basically be in Champagne, it's, called, it's an MA, so it's basically private label. We would partner with them choosing either the ideal blend ahead of time or specifically based on like what product we really want to work with. It's typically the model of arrangement. So for example, like in Kirkland, they have a champagne that's under their brand. Typically, they go and they work with someone in champagne choosing the specific blend that they feel fits their overall product quality, importing it, branding it, etc. Okay, so and in terms of going back to the story around a woman-centric brand. You already mentioned you were looking at kind of like the space of sparkling wine 
and pricing, you weren't really targeting the female demographic per se. But do you think that now that you've been doing this for a while, do you think that the the pricing is exactly where it should be? Or you mentioned as you scale, you're going to try to bring the pricing down to around $25? I mean, the reality is the pricing is based off of what it costs for us to source the fruit. And we I wouldn't say that we start from the price. I would say we start from the product and price accordingly. And we try to get the price down as low as we possibly can. Like we want these wines to be affordable and accessible to people. Got it. And in terms of telling that story as a women-centric brand, uh, what else do you believe are, are most appealing in terms of communication as you're, as you're going to communicate your story through your marketing materials or your packaging? What resonates the most? Is it about you all being like a woman-owned brand, about the women winemakers, or about, the, about your funding story? I think people always love learning more about how this came out of our history. You know, we have been working with champagne and sparkling wine for a long time. And people loved the Riddler. We all miss it very much. I hope it comes back. So that's certainly one storyline that people love to hear about. People love learning about the women winemakers and our charity tie-ins. And, you know, I think that the piece that frankly is the hardest for us to communicate as well as any wine brands to communicate is like, what do the wines taste like? What do the wines smell like? What is the experience of drinking these wines? It's, I was approving some <laughs> We were like, we're launching something new soon and trying to figure out what to put on the packaging of our new four packs for our cans. I mean, it's pretty hard to write wine descriptors without sounding ridiculous. If anybody ever figures this out, I would love to know. Like it is, it's one of the silliest parts of this business. Most customers who I talk to, I just say, just try the wines. If you like them, let me know. If you don't like them, tell me too. I want to know. But I think for most most people, they know what they like. And they may not know if there's Meyer lemon peel on the nose or fresh cut garden hose. Hopefully we don't have any fresh cut garden hose, but you know, it's a silly piece for, for a, a typical customer. You know, they want to know about the experience of what it feels like to receive one of these wines as a gift, what that might mean to them from the gift giver, what it might mean to them as a recipient of it. I think that's a big piece of it for us is this emotional connection. We hear so often from people who give these wines to a special woman in their life that it's like a sign, it's an emotional sign of like, you're a woman in my life who means something to me. You're somebody who inspires me. You've just accomplished something that's really important in your life and I want to commemorate that for you. I always thought that uh, the Drops of God, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, was always really good at capturing that emotion, but not in that like very literal, you know, flavor profile way. So good. So, so good. Yeah. Yeah. We did a lot with that book at the Riddler. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's cool. In terms of the packaging, you mentioned you did splits, full bottles, now cans. What was the rationale behind those options? Yeah. So I think that we started out 750s. Obviously that seems like the go-to place we ultimately decided that it made sense. So Jen's background as a marketing guru, one of the things that obviously is critical is events, is Instagram, is pictures, is sampling. And so when you think about bringing a bottle, let's say, to an event to showcase, we have a million events that women always want to be doing with us. Reality check, a lot of people want free wine. Not that crazy. So <laughs> there's not a, a, not a lack of opportunity for events. And so when you're at an event and pour someone a 750, they walk around with a glass. 
there's no brand recognition. You take a picture, you don't know what it is. A lot of times they don't even remember. That's very different than sitting there with a 187 in your hand, drinking out of it. Une femme, the Cali, what's the story? Really interesting from a perspective of both learning the brand, taking pictures of the brand. I would say that was the transition to the 187s or the addition of the 187s. From there, we ended up launching last October with Delta Airlines for Breast Cancer Research Month on the planes. Glass is extremely heavy. Glass is extremely expensive. Glass as a format to manufacture is a lot harder at scale than cans. Collectively with the Delta team, because of their major focus on sustainability, we made the decision to move to the can format. And so now we have basically with all of our SKUs, we're going to have 750s, 187s, and cans. We feel like they all have different places, different positioning, obviously different pricing based on how we manufacture them, but they all fit really well within the overall brand architecture and story. So that's where we are today. I will say we have a lot of interest of launching some bigger formats that would just be a little bit more fun, but it's uh, definitely a lot, lot more difficult to manufacture those at scale. I didn't realize you're supposed to drink 187s out of the uh, bottle itself. I, I don't you think can. I've done that too often. <laughs> Maybe occasionally, people, but... A lot of people do them in events with straws. It's pretty fun. We see them all the time for like baby showers and bachelor parties and things like that. I guess that's similar to the Chambon, but I wouldn't say the Chambon yeah. makes the wine taste any better. In fact, it probably tastes worse when it goes down, even though it goes down quicker. <laughs> Chambons. I would love a fully loaded Chambon. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to have to have some interesting packaging given it's made out of glass. <laughs> yeah. So how did you think about where you sell Infam. I know initially it was supposed to be at the Riddler and uh, with COVID and all that, that, that didn't happen. So how did you guys go about thinking about where you're distributing and selling the product? So we initially launched in cities where we had great networks of other restaurateurs and great wine shops. So we launched in New York, San Francisco, and Chicago, a little bit in LA where we knew some people. And those wines did really great in all of those places. But then once we had the opportunity to move forward with Delta, we really took more of a national approach. So as we said, of course, we're with Delta Nationwide, Marriott Nationwide. And then we've recently brought on sales team members in six different cities, and they're really all across the country. And so we're going much deeper in already in New York, San Francisco, and LA. We've got some folks actually in Minneapolis. Minneapolis is a big market for us. Same thing for Atlanta. Atlanta is a really great market for us. Florida is an amazing market for us. Texas is soon to be a great market for us. And so I think I naturally in the beginning tended towards thinking that we would be in all of the places that I think to dine and drink at in San Francisco and New York. Like that's my world. And so absolutely we've we are in many, many, many of those places, but there are people who are happy to drink wine outside of San Francisco and New York City. And it's really cool to see markets like Austin and Nashville and Chicago and DC and Philadelphia and you know these places where there are really robust drinking cultures and wine drinking cultures. Chicago is cool. There are a bunch of champagne bars there, et cetera. One of the things that we challenge the team to think a lot about is where are there women wine buyers and wine shop owners? I'm down in Florida right now and was meeting with a bunch of really great accounts down here. And I went to a really cool independent retail shop this week called Tim's Market. 
in Windermere. Great, great independent retail shop, awesome wine selection. And we were talking to the wine buyer and she's 28 years old and she just bought the store from the owner. I'm like, these are the places all across the country that are so exciting for us where you walk in and there's such a great assortment and wines that we love. Some of our winemaker Sam Sheehan's wines were on the shelves there. Uh, Beautiful selection and, and we're happy to be in all those places. So, you know, as Zach said, as we think about growing to become a call brand, we really need to be everywhere. The only way that you can get there is if you walk into any retail shop and we're there. And so it sounds like you're primarily through distribution, but you also do a little bit of direct to consumer or is that a big part of your business? Direct to consumer, we have a really healthy direct to consumer business. It's very, very complicated, as I'm sure everybody you talk to agrees. Shipping direct to consumer for wine and alcohol is so challenging, but we have a, a very healthy D2C business. Is it a big percentage of your business or is it? It's, I would say right now it is, well, no is the short answer. But Zach, do you want to answer that more concretely? Yeah, I would say right now we're doing roughly 2% of our revenue. All the data we've looked at, like top of the market is around 5%. A lot of the major players are like significantly sub 1% of just top line revenue. We do the majority of our distribution, obviously traditional wholesale. We're partnered with RNDC nationwide. 39 states, as well as breakthrough in a lot of the Midwest states. So just as a function of who our national partners are, the amount of volume that they drive is so insane compared to really looking at the D2C lens, the cost of acquiring a customer, you know, Facebook ad algorithms, just the inherent nature of how competitive that market set is. It's really, really difficult to have any sort of fractional comparison to the amount of wine that gets drank on a Delta airplane. It, it's just very challenging from a top line percentage. I would say long term, we have the appetite to grow that number to 3 to 5%. We like to think of D2C more so as a channel that serves as a function for our customers who don't have the ability to buy it in their local market. So really, it's a service to customers, brand awareness, place to teach people about the brand, rather than this is where we're building our business, just because the economics are so, so challenging today compared to what it was, you know, even two years ago. And I I did notice that your direct sales go through something called Reserve Bar, which I'm not that familiar with. How does that platform work? Sure. So Reserve Bar is a back-end order routing system. So when you purchase on our website, what actually has occurred is that you are purchasing from some local retailer based on which state you are. So to be three-tier compliant, we sell to RNDC. RDC will sell to say like total wine in Connecticut. And so when you're in New York, you go to our website, you purchase the wine. It looks like you're purchasing from Unfem. Technically, total wine is fulfilling that. And so that's because of three tier compliance. I will say that we right now are also establishing ourselves as a retailer based on our winery license. So for something like 30 states around the country, we will technically be the retail fulfiller. But that gets into nitty gritty compliance nuance, which I could spend ten hours talking about. So, just, <laughs> yeah, that's a whole another yes, another whole, episode. whole different bucket. Don't want to open up. <laughs> so promotions probably like a big thing. I think you guys do a lot of really interesting things in this space. What has been the biggest driver of getting the word out for Info? We have a lot of different marketing strategies, but I would say one of our programs that's been the most successful and most popular one that we absolutely love. It's called the Hall of Femme. So the Hall of Femme is a really special awards program that we do. The nominations are open to the public. You can nominate people on our website. 
And over a period of a year, we celebrated 365 women who have shattered glass ceilings. And it was so incredibly heartwarming. It was amazing to get to know all of these women and get to feature them. So we feature them, of course, on social media and on our website. But most importantly, we send them boxes, crates of wine. And then the top piece of the crate is a piece of stunt glass and they get a hammer. So they literally shatter the glass ceiling to get to the wine. And people put it up all over social media and Every time I see someone do it, I like get a little tear in my eye. It's very, very emotional. Do you make them stand underneath it as that it's a ceiling? No, they do it from above. Oh, okay. So and it's stunned glass. It's like the kind of, it's like you can't really get hurt from it. It's like the kind of glass that they like smash through in movies. Um, but it's so cool. I've seen women do it who were pregnant at the time, women with their kids, women with their partners, their spouses, their business, their team. And the reason why our brand is called Unfem is that we believe that it only takes one woman to shatter another glass ceiling. Une femme is une femme, but is French for one woman. And that's something that's really core to our DNA as a brand. This notion that every single woman is the hero of her own story. And that, you know, no matter what your dreams are and no matter who you are, you can shatter a glass ceiling. You don't have to be the first woman in the world or in history to do something. You can be the first woman on your block or in your family or your high school to do something that really, truly moves progress forward. And that's something that we always want to celebrate. And just to be clear, so I understand, is that every day then? So we did it for, yeah, 365 days for the year. We really did it like once a month and we would feature all these women. And so on that day, we would really celebrate them and then sort of call them out throughout the year. We're starting to think about what that program is going to look like next year. It'll probably evolve a little bit and... It's just exciting to think about how we can continue honoring women like this. So that's been a big channel of getting people all across the country to know who we are and to think about us as a brand that you can celebrate big accomplishments with. But we do a ton across social media. We do, of course, paid advertising, traditional email marketing. We've just started doing text marketing. But we do a lot of events we give to a ton of charities, nearly every charity that reaches out to us asking for wine, we donate to until we run out of budget, which Zach is giving me a look. But um, <laughs> we, you know, if there are important charitable organizations, we always try to help when we can. You know, our sales team is out there in the field. You know, one, honestly, one of our most important ways for people to learn about us is through our friends in the industry, like women who are awesome wine shop owners, sommeliers, and working the floor of restaurants, like selling our wines. We see those, that community of women as like an extension of our team in a lot of ways. Like that's that community of female psalms, female wine bar owners, restaurant owners, and men also who own bars and restaurants who care about having more diversity around the table. They're an incredibly, incredibly important part of the industry. And as a former bar owner, one that is really close to my heart. So you've launched your own branded credit card as well. I'm curious on how this adds into your overall brand mix and what is the benefit that you gain from this? Sure. So I can, I can talk about this. This is looping in some of my, uh, my fintech background. I would say that one of the things that we want to do is provide value ultimately to our community. And so one of the ideas within the sort of broader Hall of Fame community was how can we consistently have an interaction with these customers, be a part of their life all of the time? Obviously, you're not going to be drinking wine every day, 
But the really interesting thing is that our core set of customers are all generally pretty similar, right? They like Le Labo. They like Chanel. They like a lot of very similar brands. And so if you look at the traditional, you know, say Amex, for example, the specific offerings for a customer are extremely, they're, they're the same. The credit card you're going to get has the same point structure, the same benefits, the same discounts as Jen, even though you have very, very different ideas of what you like to spend money on. And so our idea was, what if we partnered with this company, Power, one of our investors started it, and really focused on creating a credit card that was hyper-tailored to amazing women-focused, women-owned brands to provide that as a value to our core customer set. So, for example, if you take our card and you go to Milk Bar, Christina Tosi, one of Jen's good friends, you can get extra points as an alternative to you know, going to Dick's Sporting Goods, which our core customer is not going to want to go to. And so the idea is that we can create this platform promoting, publicizing, incentivizing purchases at a lot of our sister brands, driving that value to that core customer who basically is like, you know, a part of Hall of Fame could theoretically be broader and really, really focus on one side providing value to women, on the other side providing value to a lot of other women-made brands by providing, promoting, incentivizing purchases at other women-made companies. It's, I would say it's like one of the things that I hear most consistently when I'm at events of female founders, female VCs, female angel investors. There's a real movement towards women supporting women. And one of the places where people are placing a lot of emphasis is in voting with their wallet. And we've got this amazing community of Hall of Femme women, many of whom are founders. We do tons of brand partnerships with female-launched brands. A great example is we're launching a cupcake with Sprinkles Cupcakes, female-launched, amazing, amazing cupcake brand that so many of our customers love. And we're launching a Cure Royale cupcake with them starting in in December, which was super fun. So for us, the way that we think about the card is, yeah, really an opportunity to highlight partners, highlight brands that we love, and to help to drive some additional spending power in the direction of brands that we're really aligned with from a mission perspective. Plus, it's cool. Like, it's a cool-looking card. Like, who doesn't want their own credit card for their brand? It's pretty fun. So, and you also have a brand ambassador program that has worked well from uh, Share a Sale, basically. So can you explain how does that work? What are the economics behind that? It's some affiliate marketing structure, I think, based actually individually on each influencer based on who they are, right? So the cut of a sale that, for example, like Kim Kardashian would make is clearly going to be higher than like you or me or a normal affiliate. We work with a third party that basically facilitates affiliate sales at scale. It's a very nascent program. We are testing and learning many different factors within the entire marketing mix, thinking about really omni-channel focus, everything from credit cards to affiliate to traditional pay to trade marketing across the board. So I would say this is one of the newer ones that we're testing out. So from an economics perspective, we really think of it as like a subsidy of just paid acquisition. So ultimately, at the end of the day, if we get $30 of revenue, we pay $10 to an influencer who then drives that sale, net 20 revenue. That's sort of the the framework and analysis that we look at. It's effectively a, a more viral approach, broadening the potential base of who can be selling and helping promote the product at scale. So again, this is, I think, really just lends to our framework of how do we move as big as quickly as possible 
leveraging other people, ultimately at the end of the day, creating an amazing mutually beneficial structure like affiliate is one of the ways that we've gone about approaching it so far. Got it. So in terms of you guys have had really fast growth in terms of getting your word out there, what has been the highest return on investment in terms of marketing techniques that you guys have deployed? Have you guys, as, as you go to look at that marketing mix and go to look at where you're going to put for the next year? That's a very interesting question. I would say if I could think of anything, it's actually a spend that gets us in partnership with a large national player. So anything that ultimately can provide relationships at the end of the day is what's going to drive value. So paid acquisition is only so scalable. Affiliate marketing is only so scalable. Trade marketing, you need accounts to begin with. And so when I think about how we can continue to develop our long-term scalability, it's going to, for example, the Vibe Conference in San Diego, where you can partner with some of the top purchasers at all the national accounts. So spending on events, on promotional trade marketing type shows where you can be in front of buyers, where if you can get one customer, it ultimately is a thousand stores across the country. That's a much more scalable, higher ROI model necessarily than individually targeting you know, one customer in New York City to purchase one bottle. So, you know, I think thinking bigger consistently and pushing ourselves, you know, how can we get into a Madison Square Garden? How do we network our way there? And marketing more towards that type of account rather than an individual one single customer at the end of the day. So as we look to 2023, what are the things that excite you most for the brand? I'm really excited because we're probably going to be launching some sort of a subscription program, some sort of a wine club, which will be really fun. It's a great opportunity for us to provide wines to our customers on a regular basis and to build that relationship with them over time. If you look at most really successful direct-to-consumer wine brands, they're traditional wineries that are using really a wine club model, and they've been doing it for you know potentially generations. We would love to, to move in that direction, so very, very excited about that. We're really excited because we are going to be much more readily available across the country with a couple of key retail partners that we'll be launching with. So I would say the number one question that people ask us is, oh my gosh, I just drank your wines on Delta. This is so amazing. I went to your QR code, and which took me to the website. And the first thing that they click is where to buy local. And it's our primary focus right now to make sure that these wines are available all across the country at great retailers. So that's going to be really, really important for us. What are you excited about, Zach? I have a much different answer. <laughs> I'm very excited. I'm working on uh, putting together a, a large-scale debt facility that'll enable us to really scale our overall working capital within the business so we can manufacture a lot of product at scale, really improving overall product quality over time, and really enabling us to grow as a business in a very, very strong financial way despite the overall market conditions. So really excited about that and opportunities that's going to do just from a high level, like balance sheet perspective. So again, very different philosophy, but that, that's why you see we're good yin and yang here. Yeah, it makes sense. So, I mean, obviously as entrepreneurs, everything is personal when you're doing a company together, but we do like to end each episode on a personal note and it doesn't have to be infem. But what was the most memorable wine you've each had in the last year and who did you drink it with? Ooh, I would say... Mine would be, I just had my 40th birthday and I celebrated, my husband put together this like wonderful whirlwind series of events up in Napa. We stayed at Meadowood, we went to Charter Oak for my birthday and at that birthday he 
brought, he always loves birthier wines. And he brought a six liter of birthier 1982. I'm trying to remember. Sounds what memorable. <laughs> that we had we had a lot of birthier wines. So I would say like all of the birthier wines we had on my 40th birthday. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Again, gonna take a slightly different angle on this one. This is gonna be last Sunday, standing on top of a table at the Buffalo Bills pregame, slapping a bag of Franzia, Somerset Blush, right before <laughs> jumping onto the table. So slightly different, but very memorable and very fun. Oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. Nice. Goodness. Well, thank you both for sharing everything about Invem and, and, and being really open and transparent about what's going on in your business. It's, it's super refreshing to hear that. A lot of times we love talking to entrepreneurs because they're really just open to sharing the details that you know some of these larger companies in the, in the wine space are a little bit more guarded on. So we appreciate that. And you know, this is, I think, some great context for our listeners. It's our pleasure. And I think more transparency is better. You know, there's so much that we've learned over the past two plus years since we've launched, you know, we only launched about two and a half years ago. And I think more transparency will help more people be successful in this business. And it's really important. So we're happy to do it. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. We appreciate your time today. And we'll follow up for your addresses so we can make sure we get you some wine. Sounds great. Thanks a lot. Don't forget to support the show at xchateau.com or patreon.com slash xchateau. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.